world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain, in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer, Anthony Calandra. Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Welcome to it. So 448, our next show, uh, we have uh, our two-way historian, Jay Factor, is going to be on the show, and Mark Cheeseman, who's brought his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And just so you know, we take three shows in one day because these guys had to drive an hour and a half and two and a half, three hours to come up here, days off from work or whatever. It's not easy when you're a, an, an activist. You know, you guys are activists in the state of New Jersey and volunteers. How do you like to pay? No comment. You don't like to pay for being a volunteer and an activist? It's wonderful, isn't I it? I have never taken a dollar. <laughs> Neither have I. Every <laughs> time I go to a board meeting, ANJRPC or NRA, me and Dave Lang, either I'll ask him or he'll ask me, he'll go, do we get paid? I think it's good <laughs> anger management and therapy. Okay, I'll look at it from that angle. But, you know, we always talk about the two-way heavy lifters, and we have a small group of people that are vocal, that are active. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we all don't agree. Sometimes we all agree, but we all know there's a common cause and a common good. So when you have it in a situation where you got to get guys to take days off from work and drive hours and hours to come up to a show and spend a day, we make arrangements. So what we have today is Mark is our backup over here. He's watching the door for me. And Jay, as our 2A historian, is going to be teaching us some stuff and teaching us about the history of the Second Amendment and how it applies to us in New Jersey. So, Jay, take it away, please. All right, I'm, I'm going to start out with a little story that the, the, problem with, the problem with fighting the Second Amendment, fighting gun control in court, is that the narrative has been taken over by lawyers. And the lawyers got their narrative from history books that were printed by people who wanted us only to have a select amount of history. So I'm sure everybody here in fourth grade learned about Paul Revere, right? Lexington and Concord. Yes, the British are coming. The British are coming. And basically the narrative back then was uh, we didn't like the Stamp Act, we didn't like like taxes, and we didn't like taxation without representation. So we threw some tea overboard, and that's why we went to war. Is that pretty much the narrative you got? Pretty much the narrative. Okay, pretty much the narrative. That is actually had a lot to do with it, but that's not why we went to war. So what happens in October of 1774 is that Lord Dartmouth sends a circular letter to all the governors in the 13 colonies to confiscate gunpowder, lead, and weapons. And no one's allowed to buy gunpowder, lead, or weapons without a license from the king or his privy council. Man, ahead of his time. Well, oh, sound, yeah. it sounds very familiar, right? <laughs> this is exactly yeah, what happened exactly to Mark. So on, yeah. whether, the, uh, whether the Superior Court judge is the king and the chief of police is the privy council or vice versa, right. it doesn't matter. We went to war specifically because this circular letter comes out. So we're also told in history class that Paul Revere rides to um, Lexington and Concord to warn uh, John Hancock and Sam Adams, who were the first guys that got red flagged ever. 
but that is not really historically accurate so the circular letter comes out in October of 1774 there is no Facebook there is no texting there are no telephones everything has to happen either in they read it from a newspaper or someone from another town took the news went to the next town passed the news them. on <laughs> right in Massachusetts in December the committees of safety and correspondence who are the basically the guys who are setting up the de facto patriot government hmm get the information of the circular letter and they're super worried that Gage is going to come out of Boston and start to steal everyone's powder supply. They send Paul Revere 66 miles to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Nice place. There's a fort there called Fort William and Mary. It's a guy, his name is John Langdon, gets the news that the Redcoats are coming to steal all of the powder and the, secure the cannon in this fort. There's like drums are beating. They call out the militia, which is funny because the governor of New Hampshire thought the militia were his. They end up under the uh, under a guy named John Langdon. And John Langdon's a badass, and he walks right up to the front gate of the fort and tells the guard. He's got 450 guys with him standing out front. <laughs> This guy walks right up to the front gate and says, open the gate, we're here to steal the powder. And the guard says, listen, I don't know what you think you're doing, but if you guys break in here, I'm going to fire the cannon on you and kill you, and any blood, that, any blood that is shed will be on your hands. Almost immediately after he says that, the Patriots start to storm the castle, except they have a plan. As soon as they start to storm... The, the four guards in the powder house shoot their cannon off and then shoot a round of, of musket fire. But now they have to reload. Then the 450 guys start climbing over the walls. Badasses. The, the guards are out of, the guards are unloaded, so it goes into hand-to-hand -hand fighting and bayonet fighting, and they eventually subdue these four guards. They don't kill them. Uh, they beat them up pretty good, and they basically tell them, listen, uh, we don't really care what you say. We're taking the powder. And they steal 100 barrels of powder from Fort William, uh, William & Mary. And they start to bring in carriages. They put some on the river on ships, but they basically disperse it to all the militias around the area because they want to break it up so in case Gage comes out of Boston, he can't just in one fell swoop take all 100 ba barrels of powder back. Governor Wentworth is really upset. He gets the news that the castle's been robbed, and he sends a letter on to Gage in Boston. But the the Patriots and Langdon, they all know there's no way they're going to get an express rider there in time and then march all the Redcoats down here because so, they have to walk. So they the next day they go back to the fort, and then they steal 15 four-pound cannon. And one nine-pound cannon, and take every and forty-five muskets. They they basically take everything that's in the <laughs> fort, and take it out and go inland with it, and start to disperse it into the local militias. So it's a very interesting story for multiple reasons. A, we've never heard that story. B, I've never heard it, and right? I read a lot of shit. B, every time you get in an argument with an anti-gunner, they're like, I suppose the Second Amendment gives you the right to have a bazooka. Well, apparently, according to John Langdon, <laughs> it gives you the right to have a nine-pound cannon and a hundred and barrels of powder. Okay? And why that story is so interesting is because in 1787, 
during the debates of the Constitution, John Langdon is one of the guys on the Committee of Eleven. And the Committee of Eleven is is the committee that puts together what we know today as Article One, Section Eight. Okay, so it's the powers of Congress. What had happened in the Revolutionary War is that Washington never had enough powder. Washington never had enough lead. We've all heard those stories, right? right. Never had enough money. Under the Articles of Confederation, the states were supposed to supply Washington with money, with weapons, and with men. None of the states ever met their obligations, and when Washington was in trouble, no one would ever help him. So he's writing these letters to all these governors, trying to get gunpowder, trying to get lead, trying to get money to pay the troops. He's got no food. They have no tents. He's really in a jam. Our governor, William Livingston, who takes over from William, from Fr William Franklin, our governor realizes that as a guy who's a patriot, if they lose the war, not only is he going to lose his job, but they're going to hang him. Yeah. William Livingston is a pretty wealthy guy, so he starts to give Washington his own money, sending sterling silver to Washington out of his own money. Play half times have changed. Right, <laughs> right. But the letters back and forth between these guys are unbelievable. So you really can see when you read the correspondence between William Livingston and George Washington how dire the situation was in every single battle that we had one or two rounds of musket uh, cartridges and we had maybe enough powder to fire one or two cannon shots and that was it. We had nothing. The other problem is that these guys discuss when you call out the militia in during the war, let's say 1776, 1778, the guys in the militia are showing up with whatever gun they have on their farm or at their house, like a 20 caliber fouling piece, a blunderbuss. Apparently back in the day, the older the gun, the better and the more family pride there was in the weapon. So guys, there's like 30 different calibers that guys are showing up with, 30 different igniter systems. There is no standard of supply, so they, they don't have, like some guns don't take the same flints as other guns, they don't have enough jigs to make all the different calibers and lead, it's a real logistical nightmare, and they almost lose the war because they can't get enough powder, they can't get enough lead, they don't have enough lead cast in a certain caliber that, let's say the New Jersey militia guys are carrying a different five or six different guns than the New York guys, and then those are different than the Connecticut guys. So it's a huge problem. And if you read the letters that George Washington sends to all these governors, and then these governors start to send it out to all the guys in their states, you really realize that what a mess it is, and it's almost amazing that we beat the most powerful army in the world at the time. Really amazing. It, it, it's miraculous. It, it, it is nothing short of miraculous. And and we were, we were given an abridged version of that history, but it is really astonishing that we're not English right now, which means we'd all be speaking German, right? Because if we were in World War II, we, we, we right. don't win World War II. So, oh, yeah. Right? right? So it's amazing. So what happens is as we, as we fast forward into 1787, so I'm in, I'm in August 23rd, 1787. The Committee of Eleven is explaining to the rest of Congress what they're doing with Article 1, Section 8. And basically what I'm talking about are the militia clauses. So it'll be, it'll be Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, and Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16. The Supreme Court in the United States has had a few cases, cases I think, Perpich v. United States, when uh, the governor of Minnesota was upset that they sent his National Guard into South America to fight the drug war 
he, he sued the federal government and lost and and they said the national guard is not the militia the national guard they it's an appendage of the standing army right it's an appendage right. of the army so there's an, there's another case called the selective <laughs> draft law cases where the supreme court calls them the militia clauses i prefer to call it the arming clause and so what happens is the guys on the committee of 11 basically tell the rest of congress what the arming clause, a clause 16 of the Constitution means. And basically what it does is it takes all of the power away from the states to, for lack of a better word, regulate the militia. And when I say that, I mean arm the militia, discipline the militia, and specify their training. So because it was such a nightmare, these guys, Langdon, um, Rufus King is in there, Roger Sherman, George Clymer, John Dickinson, we'll skip the others, and uh, General Pinckney from South Carolina, who was a bit of a badass during the war. These guys are on the Committee of Eleven, and they realize, we can't leave this up to the states like it was under the Articles of Confederation, or the next time we're in a war, we're going to have the same mess on our hands. Madison's not on the Committee of Eleven, but Madison knows if the militia's not on a good footing, you're going to need a standing army. And a standing army costs money. It's going to be very expensive. And everybody's worried about that standing army. So Madison's sales point is, listen, if we get the militia properly regulated and armed, we won't need a standing army. We won't even need to vote. What is it? Every two years this thing comes up to, re to finance the, refinance mm -hmm. the military? Right. That's, that's from back in the convention because they, want, they didn't want... They didn't want the executive to have the power and the purse, so the legislature has the purse, but they have to re-vote every two years to refinance the military. There's a reason for that. There's also a reason that they put the power to arm and discipline the militia in Article <coughs> 1, Section 8. So the reason I'm explaining this is because as we're talking about the mag ban, okay, and as we're talking about Mark's carry case, it's important to understand you don't even need the Second Amendment guarantee to throw out the mag ban and prove that it's illegal. You don't need the Second Amendment guarantee to prove that the carry permit law is illegal. <coughs> if Mark doesn't have a carry permit, by rule, he cannot walk out of his house armed, carrying a weapon, which means he can't show up for militia duty. So U.S. Title 10, and I think New Jersey, the, the statute is Title 38 both say when you're called out by the governor for militia duty you have to show well right now legally you can't do it because you don't have you can't carry arms in public you can't carry loaded weapon <laughs> so there is a conversation that goes on on august 23rd where some of the anti-federalists and some of the guys who don't know exactly what's going on still think that the states control their own militias there's a guy named Rufus King, and Rufus King is not shy. He's very, he's a lot like Anthony when he speaks, and he basically does not sugarcoat anything. So when someone says something is wrong, Rufus King shuts them down right away. And one of the guys that he shut down was Madison himself. But, but when Rufus King shuts down Madison and explains what Article 1, Section 8, the Army Clause means, it's very enlightening to say, to show, that the states no longer have the power, okay? So where I'm going with this is this. I developed it's what's called the Rufus King Test. Only the federal government has the power to arm the militia. And by that, it doesn't mean that you, you're, they're going to give you a gun. 
it means the federal government can tell you what gun to carry for militia duty. If they don't do it, the default is whatever the United States military is carrying because everything was supposed to be uniform. So under the Rufus King test, your militia weapon should be compatible with the United States military's weapon. Should be the same magazine, should be the same caliber, should be the same weapon. So under the Rufus King test, you need to show me, one, you three guys can do it, I know, already know what the answer is. Show me one weapon right now that the United States military carries that has a 10-round magazine. Zero. zero. There is zero what we- there's zero weapons right now that the military carries that have a ten round magazine. That means the ten round magazine fails the Rufus King test. It is not it is not uniform with what the military carries. So in in a sense, to flip it backwards is that ten round magazine should be illegal the, under federal law. The ten round magazine is illegal under federal law. The states never had the power to make that law. Now just to just to make a point here, the Second Amendment, the first line of the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia. Regulation at that point meant exactly what you're saying. Arming, to disciplining. Arming, disciplining, and, and giving giving them what they needed right. in order to that up. Yeah. do their job. And It had nothing to do with control over it. It right. had to do with aiding them helping them, making sure things were uniform, that everybody had the same... This is why this is why I told Anthony this is a good show. Because exactly what you say, what happened in the 20s and the 30s, and what happened again in the 60s and the 70s, is that all the liberal judges decided that the word well-regulated meant, oh, we're allowed to make a bunch of laws regulating, regulating. Yeah, the regulating. Second Amendment. Right. Okay, yeah. so they start to make laws. And now all of a sudden everybody's like, well, apparently the states can make laws. New Jersey did it in 1968 saying, well, under the police power, let me backtrack, guns are dangerous. And because they're dangerous, Mm -hmm. I think they compared it to pasteurized milk. We're allowed to regulate pasteurized milk and guns are more dangerous than milk. So we're allowed to regulate, (laughs) we're allowed to regulate guns. That's how they did it. Okay, but you have to understand, and, and this is where people where people miss it. You understand it, what well regulated means. But when because you words mean things because words in mean the things. context and history of the word. Word the so many times the definition of a word changes as different societies apply it. Yeah. Right. Uh, apply right. their own right. Well because what so what happens, let's talk about our, our administrative code. They call those regulations. Right. Yeah. And then they start to confuse well regulating with regu- regulate right. regulations in the administrative code and then they start making all these all these crazy laws. So I could either keep telling you the story or you guys I what I did was No, t- tell it, tell it. All right, so here's what happens. They take up the report to make the laws for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such parts of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states, respectively, the appointment of officers and the authority of training the militia Mm -hmm. according to the discipline prescribed. So the states can't just come up with their own style of training. They're going to... New Jersey... Air Guard doesn't fly different planes, operate by different rules than the United States Air Force. Right. So, 
the militia in Connecticut, the militia in New York, the militia in Virginia, the militia in New Jersey are all going to operate under the same training guidelines, which back in the day was uh, um, von, uh, Steuben? von Steuben's regulations, right? Okay, very good. Thank you. It's good to have someone else. Savant. <coughs> all right, so... Do you guys you want you want to read that, Mark? You want to start on page four? Go ahead. So this is Roger Sherman. Just read the guy's name so we know who we're talking about. All right. Uh, I am Mr. Sherman. Move to strike out the last member. An authority of training. He thought it unnecessary. The states will have this authority, of course, if not given up. Go ahead, there, Oliver Ellsworth. Mr. Ellsworth doubted the propriety of the striking out this sentence. The reason. Assigned applies as well to the other revisions. Reservation. Reservations. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, I'm reading through a microphone. <laughs> of the appointment uh, of the offices. He remarked at the same time that the term discipline was of, the va was of vast extent and might be so expounded as to include all power on the subject. But no, this is Angus King. Rufus. Rufus, Rufus. King, sorry. By way of explanation said that by organizing, the committee meant proportioning the officers and men by arming, specifying the kind, size, and caliber of arms, and by disciplining, prescribing the manual exercise evolutions, etc. All right, so Sherman withdraws his motion. Let me explain that. When we come back, hold. Sherman withdraws. This is interesting. Hold. you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise and although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day, she was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000 pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. 
My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. The world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. And what better way to say I love you than giving the ones you love a gift to keep them safe? Lipstick Bodyguard. It looks just like a beautiful little lipstick. But just like a beautiful woman, it has the power to bring a grown man to his knees. Lipstick Bodyguard. Fear no evil. Get yours today only at LipstickBodyguard.com. Just follow the link on the GunForHireRadio.com homepage. Five-year-old. That's like the hot dog that spins yeah. around. In the Seven-Eleven, I got a Tootsie Roll here, a red one. It's been in the coffee cup, the We the People coffee cup, for about five years now. I just tried to give it to Sandy again, and one of, I'm going to get him one of these days. I have some of those in my desk. So, <laughs> so, so Sandy thinks it's a little slow with us reading it. So Mark is going to continue. So basically, uh, King just talked about, uh, you know, that that. That we should have the same training as the military, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Jay's going to take it from there. Mark just breathed a sigh of relief too. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So so Let what? Jay run with so it. what happens is Madison's trying to Madison's trying to make everyone happy. So he already realized he's got some anti-federalists and some federalists at the convention. So he explains to everybody that arming doesn't mean furnishing of arms. And that he says disciplining doesn't have anything to do with the penalties. But he's saying that because he doesn't want the anti-federalists to think that if you are required to show up for militia duty and don't show, the federal government's going to fine you. Kind of like jury duty, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so, Elbert, um, I'm sorry, Rufus King comes out, comes out again and says, arming not only means providing for uniformity of arms, but included the authority to regulate the modes of furnishing either by the militia themselves, the state government, or the national treasury. So it's very important on August 23rd, 1787 to understand that the powers of the militia divided between the states. All the states get to do is appoint the officers, and all the states get to do is carry out the training. Everything else is done by the federal government. So if you use the Rufus King test, that's how you could determine what's legal and what's not. Let me put it in another way. United States v. Miller, 1939. Supreme Court rules. Short-barreled shotgun is not protected by the Second Amendment. You guys know why? No. Why? no why? Because the judges were unaware of any military unit that used a short-barreled shotgun. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <coughs> ah. So what so they it, said it was... Unless there is evidence that can show that the weapon aids a well-regulated militia, the, we the weapon is not covered under the Second Amendment. Wow. But if you can produce evidence that it's a military weapon that would help the, the organization of the militia, that weapon is covered. So basically what they say... So my tool shed full of SAMs is fine. Yeah. No. Well, okay. um, John Langdon just proved you can have some cannon, right? You can have some, yeah. Yeah. And I can't so, get a cannon. Well, maybe. You, you should be able to have at least, at least the M16 under these rules. So, right. the way, so, this, is, so this is what um, the Supreme Court says in Miller. So all you have to do is take your weapon and say, 
The 82nd Airborne carries this. It's covered under the Second Amendment. Is that applied to like federal officers, say like the Secret Service, or I, I think the way it's set up, it applies to any government, any government agency, right now. So you could actually take um, a police department, and your Glock is now legal. You could take the Coast Guard. You could take the Secret Service. Basically, anything the government is carrying is now standard issue. You just have to supply evidence that that there is that's a police department or the Coast Guard or, or or an agency of the of the service that's carrying it. So, like I said, we're all in this whole Second Amendment thing about what you're allowed to do with these magazines. It doesn't lie. The secret doesn't lie in the Second Amendment. The secret lies in the Arming Clause. The states yeah. never had the power to make this law in the first place. It is an illegal law. Let, let me put in another scenario that that your listeners will understand. Okay, Mark. Let's just assume you have a Mumbai shooting, right? You guys remember the, Mumbai, yeah, the Mumbai shooting, mm-hmm. which is like five, five shooters take over a hotel and, and, and uh, some, some areas in India. Let's just assume you have a Mumbai shooting on a Hurricane Katrina scale, okay? And the grid's down for 30 days, and they have to call out the National Guard, and, and the, the state police are just, they just can't be everywhere at the same time. There are going to be some local battles that are going to be fought with militia guys that are just going to be groups of guys like us right. who go, you know what, I, I can go hold down the street corner, I'll take care of it, mm-hmm. you know, me and Mr. Smith. When the strikers come down the street, they're not going to take over the street corner, they're just going to start giving you ammo, and right. they're going to give you boxes of 30-round mags filled with 5.56. That's the scenario. You have to have a weapon that'll be able to handle their magazine and their ammunition. Okay? That is the way Article 1, Section 8, Clause 16 is designed. We are all uniform. Now, let's go back to the previous show when we were discussing that Mark likes an AK. I know he just got an AR and he loves it. He'd probably never shoot that AK again. But let's just say, does the Miller test or the Rufus King test say that you can't carry an AK-47? As a historian, I say you could still carry the AK-47. Why? Well, if you showed up for militia duty during the Revolutionary War and you had a 20 caliber fouling piece and it was a piece of junk, at the end of the battle, you went and picked up a brown bess from a dead redcoat. <laughs> right, okay. Sure. Okay? Right. Not only that, but the redcoats really didn't want to be here. Now, I'm not talking about the generals. I'm talking about the soldiers themselves. Yeah. So they would, like, they would, like, leave the barracks and go out and try to find women and try to go to bars. They were just young kids. Yeah. And they had no money. They didn't make a lot of money. So they would sell their brown bass <laughs> to local citizens who wanted a gun. And so, to me, as a historian, the AK-47 is the brown bass. It is the enemy's weapon and mm-hmm. you're just taking the enemy's platform and using it. So because it's because it's a military weapon, even though it's the enemy's weapon, it's still covered because that's what you could get your hands on. Or you're down for thirty days and all the bad guys are all the bad guys are running AK forty sevens. That's your ammunition supply for that month. You can only get that seven. What is it? Seven six two thirty nine. Right. So you can only get that. So I would say now there's a piece in here that there's a piece in here. Um, Jonathan Dayton is our 
one of our representatives. So our representative is William Patterson, our representative is William Livingston, and another one of our representatives is Jonathan Dayton. He actually says he's against such absolute uniformity. In some states there ought to be a greater proportion of cavalry than in others. In some places rifles would be most proper and in others muskets. So Dayton pretty much says, okay, we can have uniformity, we can have regulations, but there, there are going to be some differences depending on the locale, right? So not everyone's going to carry the M16. Some guys are going to be carrying a 308. Uh, what is it? The SR25. Yes, that's the that's the designated marksman rifle or the sniper rifle, right? Yeah, I need S- one. Right. Some guys are gonna be <laughs> some guys gonna be carrying that. You don't shoot far. I just want it. Oh, okay. So, the reason I bring it up, we're there's everybody has a preconceived notion of what the Second Amendment means. George Mason is on that committee of eleven. George Mason is the original guy. He's from Virginia. So is Madison. They, they ride on horseback to Philadelphia together. They're friends. And Mason is a lot older than Madison. Mason is George Washington's like best friend in Virginia. They, they run the Fairfax County militia together. Once Mason, Mason actually introduces this clause to, to the Congress. Once he realizes he gave the power away, he gets cold feet, and he wants a constitutional amendment to say, if the federal government doesn't arm or regulate the militias, that we'll be able to do it ourselves. Madison doesn't want to rewrite the whole Constitution. Right. When Madison in 1793 comes up with the Bill of Rights, he specifically says, listen, I think it's a good idea to give the Anti-Federalists what they want, not because I think it's necessary. I don't really think ever really thought we needed a Bill of Rights, but because those guys fought in the Revolution and their opinion matters, and if it would make them more comfortable to embrace this new this new country of ours, then I think we should give it to them where it does no harm. But I am unwilling to give away any of the powers that have already been distributed in the Constitution. So what he's saying is the Second Amendment never gave the power back to the states. All the Second Amendment did was reinforce a guarantee that already existed that if the federal government didn't get you a weapon, you could just go get your own weapon. You could so let's let's say this: there, none of us have been called for militia duty. Right. Under the Second Amendment, if we decided to put a crew of volunteers together, not unlike a volunteer fire department, we could actually go hire a couple guys, ex-military guys, and get our own training as a group and call ourselves an independent militia. That's what the Second Amendment did. So all of these, all of these historians, and I think we saw it yesterday, right? In the, uh, we saw it yesterday with the law professors that were making stuff up yesterday. Ugh. All of these, right. all of these so-called constitutional professors are, are not teaching this. And people don't understand that there is a reason for the human uniformity. And the reason was, so we're all on the same page in case of an emergency. So the Second Amendment, the Second Amendment was there in case the federal government screwed us and didn't arm us, that we, <coughs> could, we could go do any of those things ourselves. We could discipline ourselves, which basically, and, and they did it all the time. So when we talk about John Langdon going and stealing the cannon, right after this circular letter came out, to steal the powder. It was a, a couple days after Lexington and Concord. Um, Dunmore was the governor of Virginia. 
he sent a bunch of Royal Marines to go steal the powder in um, Virginia. And the Marine knowing that it was just done or no 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 they were all they were, they all, were all acting oh. well they were all acting under the circular letter okay. uh, a month before Patrick Henry gave his liberty and death speech yeah. and Dunmore was scared to death so he <laughs> went to steal the powder because because Patrick Henry scared him now Patrick Henry's Patrick Henry's mad he he runs the Hanover County Independent Militia and he marches 400 guys just outside of just outside of the capital in Virginia and they surround it and they're like give us our powder back it was like a very tense five days. The governor says he's going to free all the slaves and they're going to kill all the people in the city, let the slaves run wild. And uh, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of threats that go on between the, the governor of Virginia, uh, Dunmore, and Patrick Henry. Basically, they come to an agreement at the end of like three days that Dunmore will pay Patrick Henry for the powder that he stole. And then everybody saves face. But the Virginia guys definitely lost their powder. But... but that is that's a prime example of what the Second Amendment does. Like the federal government wants to come, uh, what are what those the door knock? They want to come do the door knocking thing. You can put your independent militia together and go prevent it from happening. So in New Jersey, that's really really important for us. Why? Well, there's a guy named uh, Brearley who is also uh, involved in the Constitution. Brearley's father owned a bunch of land in, I'm going to say it's around Princeton. I don't think they called it Princeton back in the day. The royal family, the people that were related to the king, show up and they decide they want his land. It's very valuable farming land. And so they go offer him money for his land and he says it's not for sale. They're angry. The next day they send a sheriff and they arrest him. They throw him in jail. That night, Mark, Sandy, and uh, Anthony, Jay, show up with their guns. There's one jailer there. And they break him out of jail. <laughs> and he goes back to his farm. Two weeks later, they bring, they bring 12 redcoats down. He goes with the sheriff. They arrest him. The townspeople get together, and they show up with 100 guys. They overload the 12 redcoats, and they break him out of jail. These, these are historical lessons of the people arming themselves and going up against the corrupt government. That's the way it's supposed to happen. Right. right? So, the whole reason we have a jury of 12 in New Jersey in our Constitution today is because Greeley, uh, Brearley always remembered his father being thrown in jail and the townspeople coming out. And he always wanted to make sure 12 neighbors would come and get you out of jail when you got arrested. I never knew that. I never knew that at all. That's fascinating. We're coming back. He's good to have around. Yeah. For many people walking into a range the first time, it's quite intimidating. So when you walk in through the double doors, the first thing you'll see on your left is a concierge. When people walk in, they can take a tour of the range, or maybe they're coming in for an appointment with one of my instructors or me, and they'll be directed to the right classroom. It kind of softens the entire experience. It makes people feel more at home. As you walk further into the range, you're going to notice we have New Jersey's only indoor 50-yard range, which is heated and air-conditioned. The dividers at each port are bulletproof. They're extra wide ports so two people can stand side by side and shoot. There's lights in the ports so you're well lit. We also have three times as much light downrange that the average range 
would have because I believe it's important that the targets are well lit. Our target retrieval system is all digital. You program how many feet you want to send it out and it stays there. Both of our ranges are tactically baffled, which means when we run our higher level courses, you can move forward to the firing line and shoot in any direction and bullets can't escape. When you come out of the 50-yard range, to your left you'll see our large classroom and go back up to the concierge and make a right. We have two smaller classrooms and those classrooms are for small one-on-one -on -one classes, our Build-A-Bear, building an AR. As you enter through there, you'll see that we have a uh, portal with a key to go into our Platinum Lounge. They can sit around and watch TV on the leather uh, chairs or couches and they can maybe work deals with their uh, clients. And you normally don't see a cafe in an indoor range. In New Jersey, we have this archaic law where you're only supposed to go from your house to the range, range to the house with no unnecessary deviations. I'm seeing a lot more families coming in now where they have multiple kids and the wife will stay in the cafe with one or two kids and they'll do a handoff. To me, it's very important that people are treated like family, so the bathrooms are very high-end. We use marble and corian and really nice tile and full-length dividers so that people are comfortable when they come in. When you exit the bathroom, you'll see the Gun for Hire radio studio where Sandy and I tape our show. After you pass that and you make a left, you'll notice our retail area. Over 120 firearms for rent. As you turn 180 degrees, you see the large sections of bulletproof glass. That's our 25-yard range. And inside our 25-yard range, we have 13 ports. Those ports are even wider than the 50-yard range. Both ranges have full-time range safety officers. In case you have any questions or concerns, they're there to help you. With the news, events, and political shenanigans impacting your freedom, you're listening to Gun For Hire Radio, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Me through three inches of bulletproof gas while I needed a permit. Jay's just telling us this all started because guy a guy asked him, police officer or clerk asked him through three inches of bulletproof glass why he needed a permit to get a gun. And the guy was hiding, obviously, protected by bulletproof glass. That's what he just said during the break. And it's just so apropos. It's true. And this is what got him into it, and that's why he's our two-way historian, and that's why about 30%... got to be careful you don't piss off the wrong guy. I don't, yeah. <laughs> See what happens? That's, that's all right. you need. That's all you and, need. And uh, that's why about 30% of the Cheeseman case at the Supreme Court is using Jay's angles that hadn't really ever been used before. Am I correct? We, to your knowledge. Uh, Mark, that was why Mark and I got together. Mark started to read some of my stuff, and I said, listen... You could go to court, and you can get a lawyer, and you could keep arguing this this justifiable this justifiable I have justifiable need. You were never going to get your permit like that. We have to go with a historical angle. So, thirty percent of Mark's case was case by case determinations. The the other sixty six percent of Mark's case is the history. Mm -hmm. So we have time to go into the history yeah, of go. behind so Mark's yeah, case. Sure. This is our All last right, segment. So go. You're closing right, so the this show, is, bitches. If, if this is this is basically what happens in Sicardi in uh, in 1971. They pull out a law review, and the law review is is done. It's called the uh, the report of the causes and prevention of crime. It's done by a guy named Franklin Zimmering, and in Franklin Zimmering's uh, report, they make a recommendation that states have a system to determine need for who gets to buy, purchase, 
a handgun. Imagine if you had to do justifiable need for a 2C58-3 purchase <laughs> permit. Imagine that. Imagine where we'd be, right? So they make they make this recommendation to the federal government who hired them to make this book. But they leave a footnote. The footnote takes you to a small business administration publication by a guy named Vern Bunn. Vern Bunn works, he's an assistant manager at the Kansas City Regional Small Business Authority office. And Vern Bunn basically writes a report. And Vern Bunn's report is, um, guns are dangerous, businessmen who have guns are going to get beat up, the bad guy is going to steal their gun, and then he is going to take the businessman's gun and shoot the businessman with it. So it sounds like something a guy named Vern Bunn would say. Mm-hmm. So it's not financially prudent to carry a gun to defend your business. Wow. And fast forward <laughs> to everybody hanging their hat on the same on the same nonsense junk signs. Right. So so this guy Franklin Zimmering takes Vern Bunn's recommendation and rewrites it and basically says uh, guns are dangerous uh, there's no evidence that guns will provide you any protection so we don't think that people should have any guns in public because the bad guys are just going to overwhelm you with speed and force because they're bad guys because they're bad guys and then they're going to steal your gun and you are going to get killed with your own gun and then they have 13 police chiefs as uh, expert witnesses, and all 13 police chiefs said, yeah, we agree with that. Private citizens who have guns can't use them, and that bad guy's going to steal the gun and shoot them. All 13 police chiefs are, by the way, carrying guns <laughs> in court yeah. in the Sicardi case, right? Right. So that is um, the history behind when they say that the legislature created um, urgent necessity and the Sicardi rule. What happens is... At the end of Sicardi, Judge Justice Jacobs says, as all of the evidence from the expert witnesses shows, having a gun on your person does nothing to provide you with self-defense and can only cause injury to the permit holder and create a misuse and accidental use of handguns. Remember that term. Okay, until we win this case. Misuse and accidental use. So what's happened from 1971 is all these prosecutors, all these attorney generals in New Jersey, have have keep telling the courts, whether it's the Third Circuit Court, the Supreme Court um, of New Jersey, the Appeals Court in New Jersey, or in our case now in the in the United States Supreme Court, are telling the judge the the courts that. New Jersey has designed its carry permit law. Now, when they say New Jersey, they mean the legislature. So they say it's legislative intent to prevent the misuse and accidental use of handguns. Well, that's not true. That came from the police chief testimony, which came from Franklin Zimmering, which came from Vern Thun, middle manager in the Small (laughs) Business Association. So it's not legislative intent. It's just a huge lie. Okay? So there's, there's some more stuff. So we knew from Mark's case that the state was going to come back with misuse and accidental use of handguns, right? Yeah. Uh, if you go to the Supreme Court website, you look up docket number 19-27, Cheeseman versus Palillo, and you look at the replies from the county state, and then you read our argument back to them, and there's two, two or three of them. It's it's plain to see that we've already won this case on paper. 
they have no argument whatsoever and a lot of what Jay is talking about has already been written out in these uh, this uh, correspondence back and forth before the Supreme Court so uh, I, I suggest you go and look that up and it's docket number 1927 and read the amicus briefs read the, what the county is saying versus what we're saying we, we've already stomped on every argument they could possibly have come up with on paper. Well, we kind of know from Wheeler, right? We knew from Wheeler yes. and Berlinski exactly yes. where, what, what their arguments are going to be. So the other one that they like to use is long-standing and presumptively lawful. That comes from Heller. Well, public safety, too. Yeah, public the safety. Public safety. Public safety, safety yeah. uh, long-standing public safety laws. That's what they like to call it. Which is funny because the militia, right, the common defense, was all about the public safety. Right. So th- it, it's, it's very interesting. But they like to cherry-pick this long-standing and presumptively lawful from Heller as the reason that their carry permit law is legal today. And one of the things that they use is the 1328, this is the year 1328, the 1328 stamp statute of Northampton that no one may go ro- may go ride yeah. armed and cause terror to the people. I think I think that's a well, pretty... That was, that was their last reply where they brought up the statute of Northampton and they, ma- they made a mistake with that because Jensen is actually very well versed on old English law. Uh, he was quite excited they did that. Uh, he said, I'm, I have a reply for them. It's an excellent reply. Uh, that's all they have left is the statute. So we're basically, we're being <laughs> held up by a 1328 law from England. 1328 <laughs> law from that was England. England. That's England. the last argument on yeah. paper. So there's, there's, there's a couple things that go on there. Okay, First of all, the statute of Northampton, Alito has already put that thing to bed in the Catano Taser case, right? So right. Uh, Justice Alito said in the Catano Taser case, yeah, okay, dangerous and unusual weapons. But everybody knows guns are dangerous. It has to be dangerous and unusual. So you can't have like a ray gun that will blow up an entire house. But the whole way Justice Alito got to the the stun gun or the Jamie Catano's taser being legal, which by the way, she was in public outside of work. That's how it, that's how the case starts. She leaves work at night and her boyfriend's in the parking lot waiting for her. Alito compares modern day revolvers to the weapons used during the revolution and says that the, the weapons aren't locked in time. No one in the revolution could have imagined even a six-shot revolver at the time. The Second Amendment doesn't pr- protect weapons from 1776. It right. protects weapons. And if the weapons are in common use, which is a term that comes from that Miller case in 1939, which means if you sell them here, they're in common use. Hmm. They are. They are. You can't go to the statute in Northampton Ham- for common use weapons. Right. A con- something that's not in common use would be something that you just designed and made up. N- not a dirty bomb. Yeah, dirty. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. Because it's not sold in Walmart. You know, it's walking. Can I have yeah. some strontium? And, and I think that in common use doesn't mean what you sell here. I think it means what you would sell if you were in Virginia. Because it yeah. would be different. Yeah. Yes, a right. lot different. Right. Right. Yes, I could have short barrel rifles. Could have anything. I could have yeah. suppressors. Well, not in Virginia, not for long, but not now. You know. If you if you sold short barrel rifles, I would buy three today. Yeah, see? Right. And but it, we if can't. You can, I, yeah, I know. But we can't have a, a an AR-15 with a retractable stock, but you can own an AR-15 pistol. 
Yeah. Is yeah. it under right. 50 <laughs> ounces? <laughs> under 50 ounces. Yeah. Does anybody yeah. come up with an under 50 ounces? Oh, yeah. We've built Oh, yeah? Them. Oh, yeah. Oh, I need oh, yeah. to. I'm coming back. Oh, I'm yeah. coming Jimmy, back tomorrow. Jimmy, Jimmy could refer you. Uh, it's just the stupidest <laughs> thing in the world. You can't have a full-size AR with a stock that moves three inches, but you can have an AR-15 pistol. That's that's fine. That's what's yeah. wrong with that. And now they got this arm brace thing, shit, other thing. I'm not into that oh, thing at all. No. Oh, so I can have a gun that's two inches shorter than. Yeah, that's the arm. Yeah, apparently, apparently, according to the BATF, if you put that arm brace up to your shoulder. It's now illegal. But you can shoot yes. it from your forearm. But you can shoot it strapped around so with Velcro from your forearm. <laughs> yeah, you look like RoboCop. Yeah, it's not my... <laughs> could you imagine going in to get Dunkin' Donuts to get a coffee? <laughs> you feel like you got your you got your arm brace AR on one hand and you're doing everything with your other hand. <laughs> and it goes, all of a sudden, sorry, wrong hand. I'm sorry, wrong hand. <laughs> Excuse uh, me, I'll take all those donuts. When I was 25 years old, I would have owned three of them already. Oh, right. But yeah, at 58 yeah. years old now, like I look at it like, oh, whippersnapper nice. shit. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's just, right, that's right. not, it's just not my <laughs> thing. Right. But, but, but you're, uh, how much reading, how many hours do you have well, into this, Jay, since why, you talked through that brought that book window. over there. So <laughs> you guys can't see it, but I brought, I brought Patterson's Laws from 1780. So basically what happened is, is after we became a state, Patterson rewrote the statutes in New Jersey. And anything that Patterson left out, which would be the statute in Northampton, was no longer a law in New Jersey. But we still use it. Well, well, in that book, which is why I brought it, just so we could talk about it, Patterson says, after July 2nd, 1776, because our, our state constitution is July 2nd, after July 2nd, 1776, any law of England, any, any adjudication, any law review will not be read in any court of New Jersey as evidence. It's in there. But we have. Fast forward to well, because, again, just, just like the guy who was reading the statute book and, and, and was reading Jane Eyre instead of the statute book in the last show, we, no, one, no one reads that anymore. But it, what, what Jensen and I discussed, um, and again, you run into page count problems, is using that, and, w and we could probably use it, because remember, this... The, wouldn't it be great if you walked into court with, with that? Book? I think we, I think we should. <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, the argument is um, there was a court case in 1902. It's called Bovier v. Baltimore Railroad, and the New Jersey Supreme Court basically said in this case, if Patterson didn't rewrite it in Patterson's Laws in 1780, it's not good law in New Jersey, and you can't cite it here in this court. <laughs> if anybody wants Jay for Christmas with like a nice uh, quill and inkwell. <laughs> <laughs> Since he's reading all these old books, we might as well have him set them up properly. Listen, don't forget the GoFundMe case. GoFundMe.com, restore-carry-nj. That's the uh, Cheeseman case that's sitting at the Supreme Court. We're waiting to find out what goes on. And uh, Jay and Mark are working on some other diabolical stuff with the firearms ID card that I'm all in with as well. I can't thank you all enough. Don't forget, January 17th, Sandy and I take an urban revolver. Low light, no light, January 10th, Atenzia pen and knife. Atenzia Kali pen and knife, January 26th. I is done. You're up, Sandy. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. All I want to know is, how big is your fireproof safe at home? <laughs> <laughs> For <laughs> the old God. books. With all these old books. Oh, my God. we, we got to do this again. This was really a lot of fun. I, we are. I learned we'll, it a lot. When the next move clicks on their case, we'll do a post again, and we'll do the same thing. We'll have two shows since they're driving up so far. Maybe three shows. If we didn't have Dan and Scott to talk about the New York State Rifle and Pistol, yeah, we, we probably would have done three shows. Why don't we kick their ass out? 
No, I need the. We need the people wanted to hear that. Right. But this is back in the future, by the way. Back in the future. Like yeah. Bye. So like, we take. We take uh, how many gigahertz is that? Yeah, we're going to. What, we're going to tape show four four six now. <laughs> this is the finish of four four eight. <laughs> just so you know, wrap your head around just, that, bitches. Just so you know. Well, it looks like you've done it again. You've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gunfire Radio. Gunfire Radio is a kind of thick media production. The music used in this broadcast is managed by Cosmo Music New York, New York. On behalf of our show host, Master Trainer Anthony Calandro, and the rest of the crew here at Gunfire Radio, we do thank you so much for listening. Jay, Mark, we loved having you. We want to have you back. Out there, we love you guys. Thank you. See you next week. <laughs>